we have something most appetising for you on this week's edition of the programme. We're meeting the inspirational leader of Proper Snacks, a business that's transformed the landscape of healthy snacking. We'll be learning what she's going to be serving up next as the brand's extraordinary journey continues. And if that doesn't sate your appetite to hear from some of the best and brightest around, we'll follow up with a dessert course, courtesy of the head pastry chef at Ireland's storied Ballymaloo House. Oh yes, we're feasting on tales of great food and innovation today on The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. So, before we tuck into Ballymaloo Desserts, the new book from that great Irish institution's king of the pudding trolley, J.R. Ryle, we're kicking off with the story of proper snacks. Cyprus-born Cassandra Stavrou launched the proper business back in 2011, building it into Europe's largest independent, healthier snacking company. As well as being awarded an MBE in 2020 for services to the food industry, Cassandra sits on the UK government's Food and Drink Sector Council. She recently sold a majority stake in Proper to PE firm Exponent as part of a deal to form one of Europe's largest healthy snacking companies and, with over £100 million in retail sales, a true challenger to the established players in the market. It's a pleasure to welcome Cassandra to the programme. Cassandra, great to have you with us. Take us back, if you will, to the start of the journey. How did you get started? What were the ambitions right at the beginning? So from day one, when I first had the idea, a lot of the advice I got was, you know, why don't you set up a little market stall or, you know, just start really niche and then just gauge the interest. And from day one, it was, no, I want to be in Tesco's meal deal. I wanted it to be a ubiquitous household name as quickly as possible. And so it's very much part of the plan and the journey. It's so lucky that it kind of turned out that way. I think for me, the acid test is the black cab driver. So you get in the black cab and they're like, oh, darling. So that's a terrible accent. What do you do? And then I tell them and I would say it's a kind of 50-50 hit rate at the moment, whether they know the brand or not unprompted without a kind of pack visual. So the company is now 100 million in retail sales, but still so much opportunity and sort of you know stuff to go after in front of us, I would say. Well, let's talk a little bit then about realising that next phase, because it, I don't know, right? I think you had a pretty clear idea and you were ambitious and you had that clarity about the direction that you needed to go in right from the outset. But running this big, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a real sizable player, how much do you have to then think about collaboration? I mean, we can talk about, you know, obviously you have sold part of the business, still very involved. What does that enable you to do in terms of that next stage and realising even greater ambitions? Presumably it's very important to get some more clout, get that support. That must open even more doors for you. Again, was that always part of the plan that you would you knew you would have to seek other partners get inward investment, make sure that you could keep the growth story going. Was that something that you realised over the first few years of the business? Or again, from the beginning, did you always think, well, I will need to consider all those kind of options when the time is right? I guess when, so in, I think it was sort of year four, we decided we wanted to take on a bit more cash and we did a a fundraise where Piper, his private equity company, came on board and they put about seven million into the business. And the minute you take on that kind of cash with a private equity firm, you know you're on a three to five year time horizon where they're obviously looking to make their returns for their investment committee. And so it was very much 
that the kind of more recent transaction was very much part of the plan. I guess what I would say to that is when we decided we were going to sell the company, we had a huge amount of inbound interest from all different types of suitors, I think is probably the way to describe it, whether it be PE or trade or private individuals. And for me, it was about finding someone who had real kind of alignment in the ultimate North Star, which was how do we properly fire up healthy snacking so that it really does become a contender against the likes of PepsiCo and KP but also that their values and the way to get there was consistent with the culture and the business that I had built. So the guys we went with, Exponent, uh, very much kind of ticked those boxes. I think what was really attractive about that deal in particular is we are building a new factory and that really allows us to have even more control over our mm. supply chain, whether it be making progress in sustainability, being more innovative, just that next level of control around your product for us was a game changer. And so that's super exciting. Well, and that's really interesting because I think sometimes a lazy narrative propagated by some media is, oh, it's about forfeiture of control because you're giving something away or you're losing something. But the exact opposite can, and indeed in this case is the case, it's about retaining control, indeed enhancing it, being able to do more that is true to the vision, the founding vision, because you're resourced to do it. So I think that's, it's important to really, really stress that point that it's, it's, yes. it's the opposite to the, what the, the lazy narrative sometimes is. Yes and no. So I would say yes, in terms of from a company perspective, at a founder level, you know, let's be really clear, I have forfeited control. And that's something that for the life stage that I was at, I was wholly comfortable with. I'd recently had a baby who is 17 months old now. I was pregnant actually when I was selling the business and I kept it a secret because I didn't want sort of just generally potential investors to see me as risk, which is, I guess, a shame. But um, And so, you know, let's be clear, for anyone thinking of selling their company, you have to be comfortable with handing over the keys. I stayed in the building, if we're going to use that analogy, and I have a really exciting role that we co-wrote together, myself and the private equity firm, but you have to be comfortable with relinquishing control at a personal level. And that's something that after 12 years, I was ready and prepared for. Yeah, and that's, I mean, is that just a sort of detour, that point you, you made about sort of keeping things under wraps uh, to do with your personal life? Because this is a great a source of constant frustration for me is that female entrepreneurs have to think that way. And I still think that's different. I don't know, you may be different than if you were a man in the same position or at the same life stage. Do you think that's true? Are you still disadvantaged by being a woman in that context? Maybe that you're, you know, that's motherhood. It's the best thing ever. And you have to kind of tread carefully around it. That's still... It just reminds me, there's a long way to go, right? Before oh, God, I mean, I, I don't even need to pause on that. Like, there is such a delta between the kind of male and female experience in the workplace. We are making progress, but there is a huge journey to go on to kind of achieve parity. I think specifically around pregnancy, the image of the pregnant woman isn't something that is portrayed in a kind of business context. You don't see pregnant women in boardrooms doing deals. You know, that's not something that we put out there, both the corporate and the media world. I think that 
in fashion we're making progress. So you're seeing like these amazing images of, you know, Rihanna or these incredible models walking down the catwalk with their bellies out and fashion and things like that. So that there is progress in certain sectors being made, but within the corporate world, the idea of the pregnant woman isn't one of power. I think you're right. It's, it's still, it, there's always this weird assumed sort of like passivity about it, which is crushingly disappointing. Let's try and find some silver linings. Have you detected any marginal improvements or gains over, what, 10, 12 years in that sort of facet? Do you feel, I'm sure you're you know, more confident given the success you've enjoyed than you probably were at the outset, but do you sense, I don't know, there's a difference, even marginal in the credibility story, in the ease with which you can do your work as a female entrepreneur as against a male counterpart? Is, is it even marginally better? I think we've actually gone slightly backwards in COVID because what's happened over COVID is you've got even more childcare issues. And, and so statistically, we haven't actually made a huge amount of progress. If anything, we've gone slightly backwards as a result of COVID. In terms of perception, I think there has been some progress made. So I think there is more female business leaders in the public eye. If I sort of go back maybe 10 years ago when we were first starting out, it was really common for me to be in a meeting where all the sort of financial or commercial questions were directed to any men in the room and then the kind of stuff around like recipes or I don't know, what's the brand going to look like? you know, very much directed towards me. And it's maybe even subtler than that, those kind of side glances. I think where there has been progress made is the idea of leadership has progressed in terms of that less masculine type of leadership, I think, is the way the corporate world is going. So more empathy driven, guile, not just brawn. And I think that that's where women are, I guess, experiencing a slightly more open playing field rather than a level one, I would say. Yeah. One other thing that I find interesting on this sort of timeline feature is the very fundamental purpose of what Proper does, which is this thing of, of healthier snacking. Because again, if you go back to the beginning, it wasn't an outlier message. People have been talking about healthy eating and, and well-being for years. But it hadn't been sort of really kind of mainstreamed at scale that's moved on, presumably. I don't know if that's a consequence of COVID or just because people are more engaged with it. You don't need to be like, oh, you're a healthy snacking thing. Do a little stall and see if people like. Now it's like, this really matters. Is that a good news story that actually there's a demand and a rigour about healthy eating? There's no reining back on it now. And even actually some of the big players, they're being influenced by what people like you are doing. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I think health has gone on a huge journey. I mean, the fact that we can sit here now and most people know what quinoa is, is kind of testament that wasn't to, the the, case to that journey. You know, 10 years ago, it was basically calories, fat. Now there's, I guess, a richer understanding of what nutrition and health really means. I think that, disappointingly, it still comes at a premium. Mm. And that's where the progress really needs to be made, is that it's great that we can buy our avocados and our quinoa and whatever else, but actually on a kind of mass national level in major retailers, we need to make sure that healthy eating and healthy snacking is affordable and accessible for everyone. And that was very much, you know, part of where I started, you know, wanting to be sold in a Tesco's meal deal was part of that. It shouldn't be kept to sort of the posh organic shishi shops at the end of your high street. Uh, and do you think, uh, you know, obviously you don't have a crystal ball and no one really knows alarmingly what's around the corner, but 
hard times are ahead. This is not just in the UK. We know wherever we look in the world, this winter's going to be tough. There's going to be pressure on people's pocketbooks. How much of a concern is that? You're at this exciting sort of growth trajectory, but... Again, yeah, it might be premium products where people start to kind of take a step back. Are you hoping that you've got that balance right and actually you're not just in that premium space and it's a necessity and people will still stick with you on the journey even if time's a little straightened or there's pressure on people's outlay on their shopping bills because we know their energy bills are going up, all the rest of it, mortgage payments are up. Presumably that is a, a live worry, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really tough time at the moment. And Proper was born in the wake of the 2008 recession. I would say what feels different now is actually, to my experience anyway, it feels much more visceral than the kind of 2008 one. So I think from a snacking point of view, the snacking category is still growing. Healthy snacking is driving all the growth within snacking. And within healthy snacking, it is the kind of younger, more relevant, I guess, more you know trend-led brands mm. that are driving the growth within that. So it's not a concern from a proper point of view. It's more just making sure that as we face into mitigated supply chains, increasing costs, just on every level there's a lot of pressure at the moment and as a business we're trying to make sure we do as much as we can to ensure that we can still deliver you know what should just be an affordable snack for everyone well let's talk a little bit about resilience because i find that quite interesting monocle's own origin story obviously founded back in 2007 and then had the financial crisis and sort of emerged definitely stronger from it and you mentioned your sort of origins around that same time I often irritate myself by asking people about these sort of trite remarks like, you know, you learn more when times are hard or when things don't work. But in terms of your personal entrepreneurial journey, the necessary grit, resilience, these really important qualities, is there no substitute for honing them in the kind of cauldron of that sort of challenge? We've got another one ahead. There's nothing like that is there for an entrepreneur. You can read all the books, you can have the theory, you can have limited understanding of practice, but it's not until you confront these very urgent challenges, these kinds of pressures that you prove that mm. that you can do it and do it well. Do, do you sort of still... Go along with that. Do you, do you think differently about your own resilience because of some of the challenges you've met along the way? It's a really interesting conversation because I sometimes feel there is nothing more dangerous, particularly for an early stage business, than an unlimited check um, in kind of paradise. It, you know, and I think some of the stuff that we're seeing in tech now is sort of testament to that. When I was selling the business, it was COVID, Brexit secret pregnancy trying to sell the company <laughs> you know all, e all the all the easy stuff all, right? <laughs> all the big names on top of each other and you just you know you, I guess it forces you to be super focused all your entrepreneurial instincts have to kick in and it's sometimes where you make some of your best decisions um some of our best bits of innovation were born out of that mindset, you know, about to launch proper crisps and and really kind of explode the brand appeal. So I think in the face of adversity, and, and it's, I don't want this to sound flippant because it is really tough at the moment. So, but in, in the face of adversity, you have to look for the kind of the nifty little way through. And that is the role of the entrepreneur. And, it, you know, if, if you're not able to do that, then maybe it isn't the right path because that is absolutely the job description. Well, that's that's interesting. There's been a lot of talk at the minute. Well, there's a couple of things I want to ask you. Obviously, we're sitting here, we've got a relatively new government, we've got a new monarch, and post-Brexit, there's all this stuff about Brand Britain and what that means. But I sense from what you just said, Sandra, that potentially it can be a moment where those 
challenges drive great innovation. Are you kind of confident about that? Not that you're the spokesperson of the nation or anything like that, but do you feel optimistic that because of the constraints and challenges, it will force people to be creative and actually we'll see some really positive expressions of the good bits of Brand Britain, if you like, even if times are very, very hard in the short term? Yeah, I think that's the important distinction to make is the kind of short term versus the long term. I think certainly over the longer term, you only have to look to history to see that every time there is that sort of perfect storm of economic pressure, maybe kind of sort of society unrest or discontentment through that is born great innovation. I think right now, though, I just I don't want to skip over how tough it is out there for people and businesses and government need to be doing everything possible to support people through the next 12 months, I would say. I agree. Let's just sort of look forward. You said you're very forward facing and you're sort of orientation about everything. What's the next few steps in the journey? What do they look like? I know there's some exciting new products. You've mentioned a couple. Tell me what's most exciting about what's coming up next. Yeah, so hot off the press, we are launching proper crisps. So we're taking on, you know, the traditional potato crisp, but less fat, less salt, all your classic flavours, but vegan. And so that's very exciting. That really does take another huge step in taking, you know, I guess, accessing the mainstream within snacking. And then we've got international expansion as a big part of the next few years. So just making sure that we, you know, we're already in about 10 countries, but just increasing our footprint internationally. That was the excellent Cassandra Stavrou, founder and CEO of Proper Snacks. You can learn more about the brand and the latest additions to their product line, including those delicious crisps or chips, as you would say, stateside, at proper.co.uk. Next up, like all great feasts, whether culinary or audio, we finish with dessert. J.R. Ryle is the head pastry chef at Ballymaloo House in Cork in Ireland. J.R.'s debut book, Ballymaloo Desserts, Iconic Recipes and Stories from Ireland, is out now, published by Fiden. The book's designed by our friends at Apartamento Studio and is truly a stunning celebration of J.R.'s long career at Ballymaloo, from his first visit as a wide-eyed child to the present day and his globetrotting role, which takes him on the road to stage in other celebrated kitchens around the world, the River Café, Chez Panisse, Tartine and Ottolenghi amongst them, for at least two months every year. So here comes J.R. Ryle. I began by asking him what it was like to finally hold in his hands the new book, a long-dreamed-of expression of both his passion for food and for Ballymaloo. Well, it feels very grown up, actually, to finally have the book in my own hands. And it's really nice to see people picking it up now over the last while. I think for anybody who cooks and loves to eat, the idea of writing a book and making an an imprint is a dream. So it, it is a dream come true for me. Let's kind of go back to the beginning of the story because your relationship obviously with Bally Malou goes way back to when you were a young kid and you went to do one of the legendary courses. Is that right? Is that yeah, how the story it, kind of began? It started a little bit before that for me. So I've known about Bally Malou for as long as I can remember. And I believe my earliest memory that I can recall is in Bally Malou. I was four years old. My aunt who worked there took me on a tour of the school and gardens. And at the end of the day, I met Darina Allen. And she signed a copy of her book, Simply Delicious. And inside the cover, she wrote for John Robert, that's where the JR comes from, who will be a great chef when he grows up. Love, Darina Allen, March 1992. So it was 30 years ago this year. And she sowed a seed. And ever since then, working in food and dreaming of cooking and getting to cook was an aspiration of mine. And being 
part of Ballymaloo was something I aspired to as well. And when I was 13, my mother sent me on a course. Well, she didn't send me, sorry. She gifted me a cookery <laughs> course at the school. It was a two and a half day bread course and it was eye opening. It was exactly what I wanted. It wasn't a course for kids. The school made an exception to let me do it because I was only 13. And then I got to know the teachers. They thought, oh, how interesting that a kid, you know, got sent by his mother. You know, he must really, really want to see what we're doing. And through the jigs and the reels, I did some work experience and eventually got offered a Saturday job in the pastry kitchen when I was 15. And that's when I met Myrtle Allen, the founder of Ballymaloo. And to say I fell under her spell would be an understatement. But there were no tricks. I was just mesmerized by her. I was dazzled by her. And I still carry that feeling with me. And her vision for elevating vernacular food and setting value on the simplest things, but really understanding that when the produce is at the heart of it, that food can really take people by surprise. Mm -hmm. It can be anything from an apple tart, which you'll find in the book, to um, you know some of the more show-stopping things. But watching her do that made me realize I wanted to be woven into Ballymaloo. So gradually it happened. You know, I was very fortunate with my timing. We cooked side by side for over 10 years, which is a very long time to spend in any kitchen. You know, it's sort of unheard of these days that someone would spend a decade in one business. But anyway, I've been there for two now. <laughs> and yeah, so there we are. And here we are talking about it. Well, look, we'll talk a bit more about how you change things up. Because obviously you spend a lot of time traveling around to find and continue to, to seek, I guess, inspiration. But the way you talk about Ballymaloo, obviously, with such reverence, can you sum up what Ballymaloo means really for Irish cooking? Because it's, you talk about your own journey getting kind of woven mm. into this fabric it's something it, it has been transformational I don't think that's an overstatement to say that is it yeah it, certainly when I travel I realise the impact it's had and how the ripples from what was happening on a local level in Ballymaloo have touched shores around the world it's, it, it is amazing it was really Mrs Allen's vision always focusing on what was around her and never overlooking it and that set an example that then other people could follow. So just to describe to people what Ballymaloo is, if someone doesn't know, it's a family-run farm in County Cork in Ireland. And in the middle of the farm, there's an old house. There's a restaurant in it, so that's where I mostly work, making desserts for the dessert trolley. But then there's the cookery school, and people travel from all over the world to come to the school. So on one of the three-month courses, there could be up to 18 nationalities, all cooking side-by-side side on an Irish farm. It's amazing how it went from just being you know, the front room of Mrs. Allen's house to being this place that people really do, you know, they get on flights to come there and they, they come and live to learn this style of cookery. So there's a lot going on there. And it's it's kind of testimony to the passion play, isn't it? If you do something with that level of conviction, that kind of care, attention, that passion, it will draw people in. I don't think anyone could have imagined it would draw them from all points of the globe, but it, it's an extraordinary achievement. And now it has become something almost bigger than the, the, the sum of its parts. So come on, the dessert trolley. Yeah. At what point in your culinary journey, I mean, was that a kid that loved puddings? When did that um, become the way it was going to go for you, Jail? Well, because I really wanted to cook when I was so young, I got sort of pushed into it. You know, if you're six years old and you say, I want to cook something, people say, well, you know, make some cookies, make a cake. So those were the stepping stones, making the simple things that you could share. And no one ever handed me a leg of lamb or a chicken to roast. It was always a, a bar of chocolate to turn into something. So I just fell into it and then it kind of became my thing. People knew I liked baking. And then when I was in the pastry kitchen in Ballymaloo, that's when I realized there was definitely space for me there. But when I saw the dessert trolley, it, yeah, it, it was mesmerizing. I just loved the idea that you could have different desserts every day. You could see what 
you were going to get before you got it. You could have a little bit of everything if you wanted, or if you weren't so hungry, you could have a little bit less. And that's how we do it in Ballymaloo. And the menu does change every day. And the joy of that is that you can use what's available, use what's around you and what's seasonal. So, you know, if you dine in November or you dine in April, the menu is completely different. And that was something new to me when I, as a teenager, when I got to Ballymaloo, this idea that you ate differently at different times of the year, which made dessert making more than just chocolate cakes. You know, it was very exciting to learn what to do with the new of anything when it came into season. Yeah, and so you'll you'll see that in the trolley and in the book. And it's funny as well, I mean, that idea of seasonality, there have long been chefs that have been very engaged with that and the hyperlocal, but it's now become, as we become more interested in eating and consuming more sustainably, I'm sure all customers in, in restaurants, in cookery schools, at Ballymaloo, they're fascinated, genuinely interested by the provenance of the things that they're going to, to eat. It has now become... A gold standard, hasn't it, almost everywhere. But you realise that Ballymaloo was definitely ahead of the curve, if not the originator of that kind of consideration. It it is amazing. And to put in context of the world, when Myrtle opened the restaurant in 1964, this is seven years before Alice Waters opened Chez Panisse. So there wasn't a farm-to-table movement. And at the time, the idea of a 40-year-old farmer's wife with six children opening a restaurant in her house, they cut down trees to make the tables. You know, she, she did it on a shoestring. The nanny was the waitress on the first night and Joe Cronin, the shepherd, served the drinks. So, you know, this was an invention and it wasn't done before. And the idea that she would send someone to the stream to pick wild watercress to incorporate into the salad or that the kids would be picking blackberries from the hedges, it seemed very novice. There was gossip in the area about it. You know, people thought, you know, what? She had never worked in a restaurant. I take great inspiration from this myself. Maybe you can tell, but... It's amazing that she had such confidence to go about it, Mm. given it was something she had never really done on that level. And in doing it, serving homemade butter from the farm or all of these other wild foods and the the things from the shores, you know, making seaweed set milks, these very typical Irish desserts. Over the decades, we've seen each thing come into trend one by one. And she never did it for trend. She did it because she saw the value of it and she knew the benefit of feeding her children nutritious food. And she then served her customers and her guests, food that she felt thoroughly confident in. A true innovator. One of the things that I always try and do when I have great chefs and I'm asking them about their lovely books is to say, come on, you know, pick some favourites or pick something that has a particular resonance. And I know uh, it's like asking people to choose their favourite child and you can't really do it. Yeah. But are there a couple that just <laughs> yeah. I don't know, sum up exactly what you're about? One of my favourite things, and earlier I mentioned the desserts change every night on the dessert trolley of Ballymaloo, but there's one dessert that we always have on and it's Carrageen Moss Pudding. It's in the Moose's Set Creams and Fools chapter and a lot of people won't be familiar with it. It's a typical Irish dessert. Most of the dishes we make in the pastry world, no matter where you are in the world, a lot of technique is borrowed from France, Italy and Spain. But to find something that's truly traditional to a country like Ireland is quite difficult. But actually Carrageen Moss Pudding is... So just to explain it, carrageen is the Irish word for little rock. So carrageen moss is a little rock moss, so a sort of a romantic name. It's a native seaweed that grows around the coast of Ireland, but in fact down the west coast of Europe. Mrs. Allen taught me how to harvest the seaweed. So every summer during the first two weeks of July, we'd jump in the car out of the kitchen, collect the carrageen off the rocks, the seaweed off the rocks, and then we'd lay it out either on a cliff top or on some neatly cut grass. The sun would dry it, the rain would wash it, the seaweed would lose its red, purple, brown, iridescent colour and become blonde. We'd bring it in and keep enough for the year. And then each day, simmer a little bit of the seaweed in milk and it sets it. And it's lightly sweetened and flavoured with vanilla. So it's this soft set, not too sweet milk. And it has a very light oceany scent. So very unusual because we'd always think of, 
what most people might think of Asia when they consider cultures that consume seaweed. But actually, for centuries, there's traditions in Ireland of using carrageen. And it's a health food, so it's very special. We love to serve it through the year with different fruits, little softly whipped cream and brown sugar. It's delicious. And for me, yeah, I think it's definitely one of the things in the book I'm very happy to see there. It earns its place. Well, no, and I love it. And just reading through some of the recipe detail, and you talk here about it requires many hands and careful timing. And I guess often there's no secret to success in these kinds of operations. Hard work is, is a given. But I like the idea of many hands and timing. So sometimes patience is required and you need to be collaborative. And that's perhaps maybe if there is a secret to Valley Malou's enduring success, it is that collaboration, your journey, I guess, into the kitchen from when you were a tiny kid, that inscription on a book, and now your first book of your own, that is a it's testament, isn't it, to that spirit of camaraderie, cooperation, collaboration? It is, and there's a feeling of trust around Ballymaloo. Mm-hmm. There's so much that happens there any one day that no one person can take charge of all of it. So we all trust each other that we do the bit, you know, that we're supposed to do and that when you go into someone else's department or another part of the business, there's a micro dairy in Ballymaloo that makes all the dairy we need every day. There's a fermentation shed where they make the drinks. There's all of these side projects around the main businesses. And when we each go into each other's spaces, you know, you just trust that everyone's done what they should do. And it's mm. it's a remarkable feeling and people step up to the game. It's something we're all very proud of. But actually to sum up Ballymaloo, the very first line of David Tannis's forward at the beginning of the book, he says, Ballymaloo is impossible to describe in a single sentence. And that really sums it up. You know, you just have to go there. It was a delight to welcome J.R. Ryle to Midori House. And you can buy the book Ballymaloo Desserts now. It's published by Fiden. Like the Ballymaloo dessert trolley itself, it's an absolute treat. You may want to lick the pages, just warning you up front. You can learn more about the culinary institution at the heart of the story and all of its amazing heritage at ballymaloo.ie. That's it for this week. The programme was mixed and edited by Jack Dewars. My thanks to him, as always. And thanks once again to Cassandra and all the proper snacks team and to JR and the Ballymaloo crew too. Listen again and find out more about the entrepreneurs at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with the archive at your preferred podcast platform. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks, as always, for listening to The Entrepreneurs.